Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look this morning at the first eight verses of this uh, pivotal foundational chapter. You know, everybody is curious about the future, right, and about things to come. And we all want to know what kinds of things are going to happen in our lives. People have always wanted to know the unknowable, right? And throughout human history, we've seen, you know, we have seers and prophets and prognosticators and witch doctors, fortune tellers, even religious leaders who try to take a leap or at least a look into the future and then come back to the present and tell us what we need to know. And um, sometimes some of the best and brightest amongst us have made some bold declarations about the future, and some of them haven't turned out quite so well. Here's a couple of them for you this morning. Um, the man who invented the TV said that man will never reach the moon regardless of all future scientific advances. Um, the Western Union had an internal memo that was discovered that said that this telephone has too many shortcomings to be seriously considered as a means of communication. The device is inherently of no value to us, they said. Um, Heavier-than-air flying machines are impossible, said Lord Kelvin the president of the Royal Society. Um, Charles Duell, who is the commissioner of the US Office of Patents in 1899, said that everything that can be invented has been invented in 1899. This was a response to Debbie Fields about her idea of starting a cookie store. They said a cookie store is a bad idea. Besides, the market research reports say America likes crispy cookies, not soft and chewy cookies like you make. I mean, does anybody really like crispy cookies? And these I thought were of particular interest to us here. Um, an editor in charge of business books for Prentice Hall, the publisher, in 1957 said this. He said, I have traveled the length and breadth of this country, talked with the best people, and I can assure you that data processing is a fad that won't last out the year. <laughs> the chairman of IBM in 1943, Thomas Watson, said, I think there's a world market for maybe five computers, he said. Um, the, uh, the engineer at the Advanced Computing Systems Division of IBM said, speaking of the microchip, but what is it possibly good for, he said. Bill Gates in 1981 said that 640K ought to be enough for anybody. And here's the best one. In 1977, Ken Olson who was the president, chairman, and founder of Digital Equipment Corporation, said that there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home, he said. So now remember, these are the best, the brightest, and some of them the richest amongst us. And the fact is that when we're interested in knowing the future, we need to seek wisdom from the only one who actually knows it. Amen? And so Matthew 24 and 25 comprise what we would call the Olivet Discourse, simply because it's a teaching that took place up between Jesus and the disciples on the Mount of Olives as it overlooked Jerusalem. Now, chapter 24 specifically is the prophetic portion of the teaching. It points forward primarily 
to what we call the tribulation period. Now, the tribulation period is that coming seven-year span when the Lord is going to pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. He's going to prepare Israel once again to receive her Messiah. It's the period that immediately precedes Jesus' second coming right before the thousand-year millennial reign here on earth. Now, primarily... This chapter, though not exclusively, but primarily it concerns the nation and the people of Israel. And that's because we as the church are not going to be present here on the earth during that period of time. Now the teaching, however, as a whole, still has some incredibly profound and some prophetic and some absolutely important application for the church uh, you know, all of us collectively, and I think certainly for each one of us individually. So I think the Lord has a lot to share with us this morning, and let's just pray that he would, uh, he would do that for us now. So Father, we do thank you for your word, Lord, and we, we pray that you would share with us this morning everything you have for us from it, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be our teacher today, Lord, that he would give us ears to hear, Lord, um, what you would say to your church. And we ask it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So remember, we last left off the end of chapter 23. It was a full chapter, right? Jesus, after a full day of discussion and then debate with the Jewish religious leaders, remember there was those three different groups uh, that came together to oppose him. They tried to track him and, and, and track, track him or trap him and trick him. Right, with these kind of loaded questions that they threw at him. And then as he was there just trying to teach the multitudes there in the courts of the temple. And remember, at the end of all of it, he harshly rebuked the Pharisees for their pride and their arrogance and their legalism. He called them fools and blind guides and whitewashed tombs, strong language. And then at the very end of our text last time, you remember, he concluded with this beautiful kind of a lament over the city of Jerusalem. In verse 37 of chapter 23, Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And then he goes on and he punctuates that heartfelt plea with what is a very important proclamation that very closely connects chapter 23 with chapter 24. Because he says this in verse 38, he says, see your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now you remember we talked last time about the surety of his return, about the fact that the people of Israel will embrace him as their Messiah. They will proclaim those words right from Psalm 118. But in the meantime, what Jesus is promising is that his kingdom is going to be postponed. It's going to be pushed back. And that the temple, right, that wondrous temple was going to be left desolate. And that was a word specifically in the Greek that means abandoned to ruin. And notice interestingly, notice he doesn't call it his father's house. He doesn't call it his house as he has on previous occasions because at that point 
God had already left. Right? At that point, it was Ichabod, which means the glory is departed. And so in verse 1, we read, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Right? He's just formally, publicly denounced these religious rulers. He now turns his back on Jerusalem, and he would never again set foot in the temple during his earthly ministry. Now, language experts tell us that, says there is an emphasis on the, on the idea of the verb. He was going away like one who did not mean to return. And it makes me think of, you know, Ezekiel's description of the vision that he had. In Ezekiel chapter 10, it says, then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple. And I think that there's an incredible scriptural picture here. And yet, of course, at this point, it was completely lost on the disciples. They were more concerned. They were pretty disturbed about that statement that Jesus had just made about this beautiful temple being left desolate. And so in the rest of verse 1, as they walked, it says that, And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. So the disciples may have been thinking, hey, wait a minute, Lord. Yeah, we know that the scribes and the Pharisees are fools and hypocrites and, and probably knuckleheads, right? But look at this temple, right? Surely there is something good here. How could this possibly be left desolate? Or, you know, Jesus, you just told the scribes and the Pharisees that this temple was going to be destroyed. Are you sure you don't want to walk that back a little bit. Look at the size of this structure. It's such an incredible place. Look at this. And the temple indeed was an incredible building. The gates were made of brass and the courts were made of marble and all the furnishings inside it were gold. Now this temple was what they call the second temple. It was rebuilt, right, by Zerubbabel and Ezra after the destruction of Solomon's temple that was destroyed when Jerusalem was carried away captive by Babylon. Then we know that Herod the Great, remember he was the Roman ruling governor who ruled when Jesus was born, he greatly expanded it and even improved it. Herod was a master builder. And he built everything with the idea that it was going to outlast the pyramids. Because what Herod wanted was that his name would be on the lips of people throughout history. And indeed it is, but maybe not for that reason, right? Now, he built a number of other incredible projects that you can still see throughout Israel, including the Herodian and Masada. And these are both these massive desert fortress palace cities, right, that still exist there. And yet the temple itself was by far his greatest single accomplishment. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that for 80 whole years, Herod kept 10,000 men constantly working on it from 19 BC until about AD 63. Now, after Herod's work, the temple was huge. It was nearly 1,500 feet long. It was 1,200 feet wide. And of course, it wasn't just big. It was beautiful. 
Again, Josephus says the temple was covered with these gold plates and that when the sun shone on them, it was difficult to even look at the building. He said that where there weren't gold on the sides, there were these blocks of marble that were such pure white that from a distance, it even looked like snow. Here's his actual words. He said that viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes. Overlaid all round with stout plates of gold, the first rays of the sun it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they had looked straight at the sun. To strangers, as they approached, it seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part not covered with gold was dazzling white." So this temple, it was the center of Jewish life for nearly a thousand years. And so much so, we saw last week, it was customary to want to swear by the temple, right? To make an oath. And just speaking against the temple, we find out in the book of Acts, was considered blasphemy. So we could understand why the disciples were struggling with the statement of Jesus here that this structure would be abandoned to ruin. But what we're going to see next is Jesus was not at all moved by their visual argument, right? And what he says next just takes things from bad to worse, right? He takes things up to the next level. They said, Jesus, look at the glory of these beautiful buildings. Verse 2, and Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now you can just picture, right, their mouths dropping open at this point, right? If his first statement had put them into shock, then this must have totally traumatized these guys. They, they were head over heels in love with this temple, and yet Jesus wasn't impressed in the slightest. It's hard to be impressed with anything on earth when you came from heaven, right? And these must have seemed like absolutely unfathomable words. This kind of a prophecy could never be fulfilled because look, this building looked substantial enough to continue to stand there for centuries. After all, these stones that Jesus was talking about, which he said were going to be thrown down, these were absolutely massive. Some records tell us they were 20 feet high, 20 feet wide, 40 feet long, weighing up to 100 tons per stone. And yet we know, of course, that Jesus' words were exactly fulfilled just 40 years after this point. Beginning in about AD 66, there was this widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans there in Israel. And initially, the Jews were having some success. Ultimately, of course, the Roman soldiers crushed the rebels. They started up there in the north in the Galilee, and they killed and they enslaved upwards of 100,000 Jews as they worked their way south. And by AD 70, as we approached the last days of the final resistance, the, the most elite Roman legions were brought in and laid siege against Jerusalem. Ultimately, they leveled the city, including the temple, just as Jesus said would happen. Now, during the actual siege, the last surviving Jews of the city fled into the temple, 
because it was the strongest, it was the most secure building there in the city. They assumed it to be a very safe place of refuge. And it said that the Roman commander, Titus, would have preserved the temple, preserved it as one of the world's wonders, right, from being destroyed. Possibly it would have made a fantastic new pantheon, right, for the you know, pagan Roman gods, they could have converted it. But the soldiers by that point were so filled with rage and hatred against the Jews that once they had surrounded it, history tells us that there was one drunken soldier who threw a torch into it and that started a huge fire. And the fire ultimately engulfed the whole building, not only killing thousands of Jews who were trapped inside, but the fire became so hot that all of that ornate gold detail work on the roof and those gold plates on the side of it melted down into the cracks and crevices of all the stone walls. And when it cooled and finally solidified, the Roman soldiers who were looking for their spoils, which was part of their paycheck for fighting, they began to pull down the stones of the temple in order to get every last piece of gold that was hidden in the crevices, and they didn't quit until, guess what? They had managed to pull down every single stone. And these are stones that you can actually see there at the base of the Temple Mount if we take a tour one of these days soon to Israel. Now, as Jesus speaks here the, to the disciples, I truly believe that his words are intended not only to have been descriptive of what was going to happen in the future, but more importantly, I think that they're instructive, right? They're instructive for the disciples. They're certainly instructive for us because it's as though Jesus is declaring, you know, look at those stones. Look at everything that you see. They're so huge. They're so stable. They're so foundational. They're so seemingly permanent. They look like they could outlive the ages. But I don't want you to think about those in that way at all. Because the destruction that is coming is going to be so great that not one of them is going to stand. All that you see is going to come to ruin. And then in the rest of this discourse, right, Jesus is going to show them and he's going to remind us that exactly what was true of that temple is also going to be true of this world that we live in. See, just as the disciples looked at those monstrous stones and they looked at that magnificent building thinking that it would be there forever, we can look around at our world with the thought that surely it's going to outlive the ages. It's going to last forever. And yet the fact is, it's simply not going to happen. So often people today, they'll look around and they'll scoff at Bible prophecy. They'll say, well, this world is never going to actually come to an end. Look at all these major world cities. Look what we've accomplished. Look at you know, New York and Rome and Rio de Janeiro and London and Moscow, Dubai. Like, look at these magnificent creations. And yet the truth is that just as fully as that temple and as Jerusalem came to an end, so will every one of these cities today. 
It's that final destruction during that tribulation period as Jesus' return to earth gives way then to his millennial reign and ultimately the ushering in of a brand new heaven and a brand new earth which will be our home for eternity. Because the truth is that this world is built upon the very same things as that temple was and that's ultimately rebellion against God and the rejection of his son. So the encouragement for us is don't be fooled by even the best that this world has to offer. Don't be fooled by the seeming stability and the security or the steadfastness of anything that you think you can see, no matter how seemingly substantial it is, because the Lord assures us that it's all going to eventually come to desolation and ruin, and that the only thing that's sure and that's steadfast is the Lord himself. In Psalm 18, the psalmist says that the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust. Now, I'm pretty sure at this point that this message was likely lost on the disciples. And yet we know that reading their writings in the New Testament, as they look back, they must have understood the implications here. But for now, imagine these poor guys. They're walking in an absolute daze as they're following Jesus out of the temple. They're reeling at what they just heard. In the next uh, couple chapters from now, chapter 26 tells us that they were returning to Bethany, right? That's the place where they had just come from the home of Mary and, and Martha and Lazarus. They were going back out of the city, right, to the east across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives over to Bethany. And so look, it says in verse 3 that as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, interestingly, just as a bonus for you Bible students, from that very same vision of Ezekiel, of the glory of God departing the temple, Ezekiel goes on to record this. After the glory of God departed the temple itself, it says that the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. So here we have Jesus, who the letter to the Hebrews says is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of the Father, right? And whom John declares the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that we saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Here's Jesus, who's just departed the temple, and now who just happens to have stopped at the top of the Mount of Olives. Maybe it's just a coincidence. Maybe Jesus was just a little tie-tie from climbing up the, right? Or more likely, right, he stopped symbolically, right, prophetically. And of course he stopped because he knew that what he had just said to these guys would have prompted and provoked a number of thoughts and a number of questions. And so they, these guys ask him three different questions about this prediction. And they likely ask these three questions, which really probably were the same question in their minds. It kind of had this picture of, you know, when, when my kids kind of get riled up and they can fire off three questions before I can even breathe to answer the first one, right? We need to remember 
that the thinking of these disciples all revolved around this coming glorious age of Messiah and the expectation that he was going to come in power and glory and destroy his enemies and rule over the entire world. And they thought that this was the time for that to happen. And so they wondered, wait a minute, if Jerusalem, and specifically if the temple's going to be destroyed, then how could there even be a nation to rule over or a temple to rule from? So the first thing they want to know is, when is this going to happen? When is all of this stuff going to be destroyed? Now, it's a very logical question. We know it's that event we just talked about in AD 70. And yet, interestingly, the answer isn't actually included here in the Gospel of Matthew. We find it in the Gospel of Luke. We find segments of it in the Gospel of Mark. Right? We see here that Jesus is going to speak to this question, but only in the context of answering their other two questions, which are, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? See, they were right. They associated the destruction of the temple with the end of the age and the kingdom. Surely they thought that anything to destroy this must be so cataclysmic what they, you know, they could have been thinking if they, you know, if they've been studying their scriptures, Zechariah 14 talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, but it talks about the final destruction. What these guys didn't yet understand was that there was going to be a long period of time between the destruction of Jerusalem and the time when Jesus would fully return in glory. But what Jesus knew is that at this point it was time to start answering their questions. Right? He had to start filling in the blanks for them. He knew that the religious leaders had just rejected him, that they would soon deliver him to the Romans. He knew the bitter fate that was coming to Jerusalem, and so he wanted to give the guys some hope and some confidence because he knew that they were about to be greatly tested. And what I think is interesting is that to do that, what he does is he's going to lay out for them in the rest of this teaching this very powerful panorama of the rest of human history. And he's going to start in these verses 4 through 8, which is all we're going to look at this morning. Don't panic. right? He's going to start by talking particularly about the characteristics that would be present during this present age, right? this time that we live now. Right, the general world conditions between his ascension and the time immediately preceding his second coming. And he starts that off with a, a warning about spiritual deception. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, name saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. So Jesus says right from the outset, right, that religious deception would come during that time leading up to his return. Of course, we think of everything from the full-blown false religious systems that have been around for ages. We think about the rebirth recently of so many of the new age philosophies. We think about all the new self-help followings, right, which really is a religion in and of itself. We think about the relatively recent explosion of the pseudo-Christian cults 
like the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses, all of which has happened just in the last 150 years. And what all of these things have in common is that they all offer to have the answer. When you think about the books that are being read, the podcasts that are being listened to, think about how many of them are spiritual in nature. And in most of them, you have people standing up saying, basically, I'm the anointed one, right? I'm the one who has the answer to the emptiness and to the problems that you're facing. You just need to become my disciple, and I can lead you out of that. I can lead you into a fulfillment and into purpose in your life. And we see that this is going on all around us at an increasingly alarming rate. And I think it's significant that he begins this first with this first warning about spiritual deception because of out of all the difficulty that we're going to see him detail in the next few verses that he knows are going to continue to come upon the earth, spiritual deception is his first warning because the consequences of falling prey to spiritual deception are eternal. You see, as terrible as the rest of these things may seem, they're all temporal. But a spiritual deception is something that's going to outlive this life, and it's going to determine where I will spend eternity. If you're here and you're not a Christian yet this morning, it is so very important that you not be drawn into or that you not be taken advantage of, that you not be deceived by these spiritual deceivers. And the truth is that the harder things get in the world globally, the more desperate people are going to become personally as they're reaching out and looking for answers, listening to anyone who is saying anything that sounds fresh and new, as long as they're saying it with confidence and with authority. It's amazing to me, especially here in the United States, where people for the most part have been raised with at least a knowledge of Jesus, that they are so quick to dismiss him because they're looking for something they think is newer, something that's fresher, something that's just a little bit better. But there's the deception. Because truly there is nothing newer, there is nothing fresher, there is nothing better than the new life that's available to them in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and that old things have passed away, and that all things have become new. What could possibly be newer and fresher and better than that. Jesus said, take heed that no man deceive you because he knows that Satan works by imitation. What Satan wants to do is he wants to ensnare by counterfeiting everything that's of God. So we need to be on guard against this constantly. And Jesus said, you can expect that this kind of thing is coming. And then he continues, in verse 6, he says that you'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. He says, see that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. So not just spiritual deception, 
but there's going to be violent disagreement. And notice Jesus specifically points out that wars in and of themselves do not announce the end of the age. They don't specifically announce the coming of the Lord. There have always been wars in the world. There always will be wars right up until the end because wars and rumors of wars are constant reminders of man's foolishness in rejecting the Prince of Peace. But it's true that war has been a scourge of the world and a scourge of mankind since time began, but it's also true that there is no period in history that has witnessed a greater number of wars or a greater destruction brought about by them than we have in the past hundred plus years. Here's a few references. One study showed new research by the University of Warwick and Humboldt University shows that the frequency of wars between states increased steadily from 1870 all the way up to 2001 by 2% per year on average. Another author commented that during the 20th century alone, more people have been killed as a result of war than all previous centuries combined this has resulted in hundreds of millions of people being killed in wars like World War I, World War II, Russian Civil War, Congo War, Korean War, Vietnam War, Iraq, etc., etc. Today there are conflicts and wars raging all around the world. And another author, there was an article in the Washington Post, who said the 20th century wars have been total wars against combatants and civilians alike. The barbarian wars of centuries past were alley fights in comparison. And we all know that with our modern day technology based advances in weaponry and warcraft, the science of war has reached an absolute, well, what seems like a pinnacle, right? One atomic scientist at one point re reportedly was asked what weapons would most likely be used in World War III and he thought about it and his answer was this, I'm not exactly sure which weapons will be detonated in World War III, but I'll tell you which ones will be used in World War IV, rocks. He says, because rocks will be all that's left if World War III ever takes place. War is this constant reminder of the sinful nature of man and of our ability not only to destroy ourselves, but of our absolute inability to govern ourselves. And what we need to understand is that man will never be capable in and of ourselves to solve the problem of war. Because the League of Nations couldn't solve it, the United Nations won't be able to solve it, the G7, G8, G20, however many Gs you want, is not gonna solve it. There will be no peace until the Prince of Peace comes to bring peace. But until then, here we are. Until then, we can continue both to enjoy and we can continue to offer to others the peace individually that only Jesus can bring. This, you know, you think about in this context when Jesus said in John 14, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Jesus goes on to say, in addition to these wars and these rumors of wars, look in verse 7, 
He starts out to say, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So there are actual wars, right, where identifiable countries are fighting with one another. That's war the way that we've traditionally understood it. But Jesus said that in the days which precede his return, you'll have these rebellions and factions within countries that are going to destroy those countries from the inside out. That Greek word there for nation is the word ethnos, which literally means a race or a tribe. So what Jesus is saying here is that ethnic groups are going to rise up against each other. And research shows that conflicts within states now make up more than 95% of all conflicts. The, the source of the conflicts can be political or social or economic or religious, but whatever it is, the individuals that are in conflict have to expressly fight for their particular ethnic group's position within that society. And this kind of ethnic conflict now is one of the most major threats to international peace and safety. We think about the conflicts in the Balkans, in Rwanda, and Chechnya, Iraq, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, India, and Dufar, right? As well, of course, as that long, you know, Israel and the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, all of these are from the late 20th and earliest early 21st centuries, right? And we add to that, we see this, the complete destabilization of provinces and of states, and in some, place, some cases, entire regions as this kind of ethnic violence continues. You know, you so often see genocide and crimes against humanity and economic decline, failure of entire governments and environmental problems, and of course, the refugee crises that they create. To all of this, we add these massive armies now that are being formed that have no allegiance to any one nation, but only to this allegiance to themselves and to their cause. We think about it throughout the Middle East and Africa. We think even about the drug cartels, right, of South and Central America. And we look at how precarious all of those governments have become because of the control and the corruption of all of those factions. And to all of that, we can lump right on the top radical Islam. Radical Islam who is fighting a war against the entire world. But because the world doesn't really understand religion, they don't understand that this is a war. The rest of verse 7, Jesus says, there will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. So coupled with this widespread warfare, so often we see famine and disease. And Jesus adds here, earthquakes in many places, right? There seems to be this indication that there would be this increase in these natural convulsions as the end draws near. Did you know that even in our, in our time, that extreme poverty and malnutrition remains a daily reality for almost a billion people on this planet? A billion people who are trying to exist on less than a dollar a day. 
And as the world's population grows, of course, so does that number. 98% of those people, they say, live in the developing countries of Asia and the sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America. They estimate in those areas that more than a quarter of children under five years old are malnourished. On top of that, we can add, you know, doctors are warning that they're seeing this current resurgence of these drug-resistant diseases. They say they're losing the battle against diseases that they once thought that they could treat, right? Vaccine-resistant polio strains and drug-resistant malaria, AIDS and Ebola becoming more frequent than ever. And the real warning, they say, is that the threat of influenza might be the most dangerous of all. Right? The World Health Organization just sent out a warning that the world has to prepare for a flu pandemic similar to that of the 1918 Spanish flu where approximately 50 million people died. There was a Reuters article last month that said that the world will inevitably face another pandemic of flu and needs to prepare for the potential devastation that could cause and not underestimate the risks um, type A, type N, type B, human flu, swine flu, bird flus. And now these flus, of course, are combining. And some of these new strains, they said, have a fatality rate of close to 60%. I don't know if you saw this. There was an article just Friday. Sorry, it wasn't even in there till Friday. And on Friday, I dropped. One doctor was quoted that we have a complete breakdown of the basic needs of civilization in Los Angeles right now. Dr. Drew Pinsky told Fox News. We have, three, we have the three prongs of airborne diseases. Tuberculosis is exploding, rodent-borne. We are the, one of the only cities in the country that doesn't have a rodent control program, and sanitation has broken down. Pinsky said bubonic plague, also known as the Black Death, a pandemic that killed off millions in the 14th century, is likely already present in Los Angeles. If that's not enough, experts say we're experiencing an unparalleled increase, not only the amount and the size, but also in the locations of earthquakes that are happening today. A research geophysicist with the U.S. Geological Survey right here in Menlo Park said we recently experienced a period that has had one of the highest rates of earthquakes ever recorded. Now, a great earthquake is anything above 8.0, right, which results in total destruction. The average rate of big earthquakes, which is anything above a 7, they say that it increased by 65% between 79 and 2014. Then it accelerated in the first three months of 2014 to more than double what the average was in 1979. Volcanic activity as well has been increasing all over the planet. A brand new worldwide uh, record for eruptions was set in 2013. Interestingly, in 2018, there were less volcanic eruptions, only 70 as compared to 82, but 35 of those were brand new eruptions that began just in that year. The point is, Seismic activity is certainly on the rise. Now, aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> now, I know you guys slept in a little bit. 
you woke up, you had a couple nice cups of French roast or maybe a nice breakfast, you came down here to worship the Lord, you see the kids, they get their, you know, thank you, Pastor Bill, for ruining my day. But hang in there. We've got one more verse. It's about to get super encouraging, admittedly in a little bit of a roundabout way. Because what Jesus says next, he says, you know, of this spiritual deception and these wars and these rumors of wars and of the nations against nations and famines and pestilences and earthquakes, he says in verse 8 that all these are the beginning of sorrows. Now, that doesn't sound too encouraging. But understand, he says, look, as you see all these things happening, he says, know that they don't in and of themselves signify the end, but they are the beginning of the end. Specifically, they're the beginning of sorrows. Now, that's a specific wording, right? The Greek word translated as sorrows is what we would think of as birth pangs. So he literally called all of these things the beginning of labor pains, Now, of course, birth pangs or labor pains are what we would now call contractions. They speak of frequency and of intensity, right? As any mother here would tell you, as a woman gets nearer the birth, the contractions become more and more frequent and more and more intense. And some of us dads have some scars to prove that, right? (laughs) So what Jesus is saying is that like labor pains, This deception and war and famine and earthquakes and pestilence, they're going to kind of erupt and then they're going to subside. As we get closer to that time of delivery, we can expect the contractions are just going to intensify. He's not saying that these things have never occurred in human history. They have. But what he's saying is that as the end draws near, they're going to occur with a greater frequency and a greater intensity, just exactly as we're seeing all around us today. So the contractions are more and more frequent. They're more and more intense. If any of you can still stand to follow the news, what you'll notice is that there's no longer any lapse between different world crises, but they just seem now to kind of flow right one into another. It's like we're at eight centimeters, right? We're at eight, and the birth of the kingdom is close at hand because the point is that just as a pregnant woman's contractions indicate that the child is going to soon be born, these universal conflicts and catastrophes are the very thing that are going to lead to the birth of that glorious kingdom age. They are the thing that are going to lead to that time when Jesus is ruling and he's reigning righteously right here on earth. But until then, Jesus says that we're going to witness as the world systematically unravels on every level. Right? It's going to destabilize spiritually and politically and materially and physically. And that's why we see these things increasing before our eyes and eventually it's all going to collapse because Jesus promised that it would. Just like he promised the unthinkable that those huge stones of that glorious temple would be thrown down. And yet notice one thing. Right in the middle of all of that he just said, which we conveniently skipped right over, 
right in the middle of all of that, in verse 6, notice that he said what? See that you're not troubled. Right? It's almost a laughable thing to say, isn't it? The word troubled there has that sense of being alarmed or disturbed or startled or terrified. And Jesus says, don't be any of those things. And so we sit here on a Sunday morning with our head in our hands and we ask the question, how in the world can we live in a world with all of this happening and not be troubled? And the answer is that we have to return to the reminder of Jesus here that all of these things are actually beautiful birth pangs, right? See, women don't endure labor for nothing, but there's that joy of the, the birth of a child that makes all of the pain of labor worth it. And all of these painful pangs are leading to something that's so much better in the birth of the kingdom. Because there truly is something glorious and something wonderful that's about to be birthed just as Jesus is promising that it would. And I think that in just the same way that he explained to the disciples so very calmly what was going to happen to the temple and he very calmly explains to them what's going to happen in this world that we live in, Jesus could do that so calmly because just he wasn't invested in anything physical in this world. Jesus was invested only in things that are spiritual. And the things that Jesus was invested in are things that these other things will have no effect on at all. You know, I think he tells us in such painful detail what will happen in the world to make sure that our hearts aren't set on the world. Because Jesus wants us to be looking up, right? Looking up because our redemption, our redemption draws near. It's coming near when he returns for us at the rapture of the church. And as we look here at Israel now back in the land, we look at the world becoming more fragmented before our eyes, we have a choice to make. Right? And the choice is that we can let all of this bludgeon us every day and terrify us every day and toss us back and forth every day, or we have a choice to right here and now, this morning, walk out of this room and say, God, I don't want the world to have that kind of a hold on me. But Lord, what I want is that as these things, as they do unfold, I want these things to be a reminder to me in my spirit that you are at the door and that you are about to return. And Lord, I can't do that in my own strength. I need your spirit to work in my spirit to help me to process the things that I'm seeing in this world and process them in that way. Now this morning, we're going to finish up by taking communion. And communion, as you know, is an opportunity where we look back at the cross and what Jesus did. It's also an opportunity that we take and we look forward to his return for us. It's an opportunity when we can look around at the world that we live in and at the people that we're serving and we're ministering to. And we can draw strength from the union that we have with Christ and from his spirit that lives within us as we seek to reach out. 
So it's a time to take time between you and the Lord, to confess anything that you need to, to ask for that fresh start, and to ask for his help in helping us to live in this world the way that he would have us to live. Amen? So Kissy's going to come back up with the team, and uh, I'll pray. The communion's available. It's open communion. You don't have to be a member here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. We don't have membership. If you're part of the body of Christ, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we would love you to take communion with us. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be terrified this morning. I would be. You don't have to walk out of here terrified. You can walk out of here with that same sense of peace and that same sense of calm that so many of us in here have. I would encourage you, there will be prayer counselors up to my right and to my left. And I would encourage you, don't leave today without talking to one of them. Don't leave today without coming up and, and grabbing me. Talk to someone. Let us help to introduce you to Jesus Christ and the work that he wants to do, the peace that he wants to provide in your life. Amen. Let's pray and worship and uh, partake of communion. Father, we thank you so much for your word, Lord, and as challenging as it is on a morning like this and a text like this, Father, we pray that we would be encouraged. Lord, as Jesus used this to try to encourage the disciples to bear up under what he knew that they would have to bear up under. Lord, we know that, that your heart for us is the same. So we pray, Lord, as you've given us insight through your spirit into the things that are to come, Lord, that that, that, that insight would quicken us in our spirits, Lord, to live for you each day, to reach out to those, Lord, and to um, just to look to you, Father. We thank you for this time of communion. We pray, Lord, that... Um, as we each take time to reflect on the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, for us, Lord, that it would be something, the cross would never be something that becomes common, but would have a fresh and a, uh, just a fresh newness, Lord, every time we, uh, we remember it and celebrate it. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.